Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We've been uh, walking through the book of Numbers, uh, which is about Israel's wandering through the wilderness. And uh, here at Westminster, you know, our goal, at least my goal as a pastor, is not necessarily to be clever and funny up here in the pulpit. My wife says that comes naturally anyway. I don't need to try. And when I try too hard, it usually backfires. But our goal is simply to present the scriptures and help you have a better understanding of what they say. And so we read long texts and then we don't set it aside and just talk, but we go back to the text and we try to connect what I'm saying to the text and explain it. So hopefully at the end you can say, oh, I understand that text a little bit better. And sometimes it's a little difficult because the distance between our culture and the culture in which the text was written is, is there's quite a distance there. So there's some gaps to fill in our understanding so we can understand what it meant in its context and how it applies to our context. So we've been walking through Numbers. Uh, it's about Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And in chapter 1, just by way of review, the book opened with a census of the tribes of Israel while they're at Mount Sinai. And thus you have the name of the book, Numbers. Uh, in chapter 2 through 4, God gives directions for how The Israelites are to be arranged in the camp with the priests and the Levites circled around the tabernacle, which was God's tent in the middle of the camp. And uh, and they were to focus around that as a a between, between God and the people, uh, because God was supposed to be central to their identity, but they needed to come through mediators. And then in chapter 5 through 8, we see various laws about the ritual purity, which was to remind the people that if God lived among them, they were to live different lives, holy lives. Uh, we see in chapter 10, then, where God's glory lifts from the, uh, the tabernacle and he begins to lead his people through the wilderness to the promised land. But they don't get very far. And in chapters 11 through 14, Israel begins to grumble against God. And boy, do they ever grumble. In chapter 11, they grumble about the food. In chapter 12, they grumble about their leader, Moses. And in chapter 13 and 14, they grumble about the spies who've returned from checking out the promised land. And they just grumble and grumble and grumble over and over again, refusing to trust in God's promises and his provision and his protection, despite all that he's done to rescue them out of slavery from Egypt. Now, as an aside, the necessary element to a, to a good story is sequence, right? The sequence needs to make sense. There needs to be a clear plot line, an orderly sequence of events where each element kind of advances the story. There's an introduction. If you remember, I think back to freshman year of English, right? You have an introduction, you have, you have a conflict and rising tension, then a climax, and then you have relief and resolution. Right? And, and that's how stories tend to make sense. But the dilemma is when you read through numbers, it's not immediately obvious how chapter 15 plays into the plot line. In chapters 11 through 14, it's fast-paced storytelling. But then why does the writer suddenly switch from telling a story to recounting various laws and regulations? Is this simply poor 
storytelling techniques that interrupts the flow of thought? Well, as we jump in here, we'll see that's not the case at all. We'll see, as with the earlier sections with the laws and regulations, they're purposefully and carefully placed right where they belong at this point in the story so that they can artfully weave very important themes to advance the storyline. How so? Well, we see so far in the story is the repeated failures of Israel, right? Repeated failures to trust God and obey him. Instead, they rebel and they bark at God. They grumble, grumble, and grumble. And that just begs the reader to ask, how long will God persevere with such a stubborn, ignorant, and rebellious people? How long? How can such a beautiful God live with such a beastly, overreactive, and wild people? In a way, this is the original story of Beauty and the Beast. For those of you who love that movie, I just saw a wonderful rendition of it over at the high school in Mannheim Township. But this is the original story of Beauty and the Beast, of how love, love that is true and firm, can break the spell of stubborn selfishness. And as we'll see, these regulations in chapter 15 actively drive home that point of how could such a beastly people live with such a beautiful and holy God? Okay, so by way of outline, as we look at this, I want to look at two sections in this longer chapter, okay? The first section is the covenant regulations for table fellowship with God. The second section is covenant regulations for two types of sin, right? When you're in a relationship with God, there's going to be two types of sin, intentional and unintentional, okay? So as we look at these regulations, we're going to see the character of God, of Yahweh, And his intentions for Israel, they're very, very clear. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in, and you'll see how. God, thanks so much for this evening and the time we have to be together and to read your word and to learn from it. God, we pray that you would help us to not be distracted, but to pay attention to what you have said. We thank you that you are a God of revelation and communication, that in the great cosmic game of hide-and-seek, You are not the one hiding. We often are. You are the one seeking. You're the one speaking. And so help us to listen to what you have to say and take it in and be benefited by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So first, the first part, I want to talk about the regulations for table fellowship with God. Okay. Pay attention because there's different portions of having this table dinner, right? There's, there's the light fare, small portion. There's the, the lunch size portion. And then there's going to be the feast or large size portion. Okay. Picking up at verse one in chapter 15, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that you are into inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then he's going to talk about the small light fair portion, right? Verse four, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering 
of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter hin of oil, and you shall offer it uh, with the burnt offering, or for the sacrifice, a quarter of a hin of wine, and for the drink offering, each, uh, uh, and for each drink offering for each lamb. Then we have the medium version. Or for a ram, you shall offer for a grain offering two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering, you shall offer a third of a hin of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. All right, now the supersize size. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or for a peace offering to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil, and you shall offer for the Lord, uh, you shall offer for the drink offering half a hin of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma for the Lord. And then the summaries in verse 11, thus it shall be done for each bull or ram or for each lamb or young goat. As many as you offer, so you shall do with each one as many as there are. Now, let me stop here before we continue, and let me just make a few brief comments, okay? First, remember in chapter 14, God has just finished punishing Israel rather harshly. He punishes Israel for their grumbling and their rebellion for refusing to go into and fight for the promised land and instead wanting to return to Egypt. And he says, this generation shall not enter my rest in the promised land. And that's where it ends in chapter 14. And we pick up here in chapter 15. In spite of this harsh punishment, the picture, belie- the picture beginning with verse 1 of chapter 15 is of better days to come a day when God will live in joy and peace with his beloved, his beloved people, and they with him in a beautiful new estate, a new home. Notice verse 1. He says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you offer to the Lord, right? So let's not fail to see the Lord's character and intentions for Israel here. It reflects what Moses has already told us and what he already knew about God's character and intentions from his first interaction at the burning bush, right? God could not and would not abandon Israel no matter how much they messed up and got it wrong and sinned. Why? Because Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Yet at the same time, God must continue to be a God of justice and mercy. He cannot allow the iniquity of the wicked to go unpunished. That's exactly what he said when he was the burning, you know, appearing to God as the burning bush in the wilderness. Therefore, God would do in chapter 15 what he said he would do back in chapter 14. God would not allow those who rebelled to enter the promised land, but he would make sure that their children entered. However, this new generation had to learn something that their parents never learned, how to properly relate to God and to faithfully live with him according to the covenant. And as with any situation right, where you're trying to teach rules for the home, good manners, right, where do they start? Good manners begin at home, and yes, they usually start at the dinner table. 
For when a family is assembled around the table for fellowship, that's where we learn how to honor and serve one another. And the same is true for the family of Israel. Notice in verses 1 through 11, God prescribes the acceptable table manners for his children when you dine with him in his house. How do I mean? Every family must choose to regulate their behaviors as a family if they hope to maintain their mutual respect uphold their covenant obligations, and enjoy their covenant blessings as a family. In other words, to establish and build trust and intimacy as a family. So, for example, if you neglect to prepare a meal or make time to eat together as a family, over time you lose intimacy with one another. And we see it in our culture. Very few families eat together now. No wonder people are so lonely and alienated and struggling with anxiety. But if you come to the table angry and and refuse to deal with your disappointment and anger properly, you won't be able to maintain table fellowship either. There's all types of things that can get in the way. There's an old saying, families that eat together stay together. Have you ever heard that? Families that eat together, stay together. Those that abide by good manners, right? Those that sit down at a table and share a balanced meal, they nourish not just their body, but their soul, the very health of their community. And the same is true with God's family. The same is true in God's house. It is there around God's table that we must learn how to live in God's family as his covenant people, where we learn good manners. Notice in verse, uh, notice how all this is illustrated in the first 11 verses. Whether you come into God's fellowship, you know, and fellowship at the table to say, you know, God, I, I need to talk, <laughs> or God, I'm sorry, or God, I had a great day and I love you. All these are illustrated in how God wants us to come. Look at it. The text mentions in verse 3, free will offerings, food offerings at the feast. These are essentially fellowship offerings that communicate to God, thank you, God, I love you, and I enjoy spending time with you. That's what all these fellowship offerings and free will offerings were about. They're thankgiving, thanksgiving offerings. In the second half of verse 3, there's burnt offerings and sacrifices. These are the fellowship offerings that communicate to God, God, I'm sorry. I know I hurt you, and I want to reconcile with you. I want to work it out. I can't live without you. Please forgive me. Now, not only was your fellowship meal to be shared with God and his family, each meal is balanced, right? It includes a protein, a carb, and a drink. Your meal with God came in different sizes, small, medium, and large, depending on the situation. A small fellowship meal is described in verses 4 and 5, right? There's always a side of flour mixed with oil, but the small animal is a lamb or goat, and it's topped off with a quarter hint of wine. The medium-sized meal is in 6 and 7. It included a medium size of mixed flour and oil. Uh, a medium-sized piece of meat, which is a ram, and a larger hint of wine. And then the super size is the large bull with the largest size of, um, of flour and the largest hint of wine, right? What's all this mean? You know, it's all summed up here that whatever you freely decide to offer to God or, or have the resources to enjoy with him, know this, that any meal with God 
must be done properly. Right? There's a manner in which we must come into the king's presence and sit at his table. This is the king's table. And we are to act like royal people. Why? Because God's character was marked by steadfast love and devotion. And he wanted to discipline his royal children to grow out of their rude and selfish ways and become distinctive, to become holy. They must stop acting like unreasonable animals and become civilized. And he is intent to make his people fit for his table and his kingdom. But what's remarkable, even more remarkable, about what we see about God's character and his intentions is that all that he offers at his table is not just for his natural-born kids. No, he has a big, big house with a big, big table. Look at it. And he invites a whole lot of people. Continuing on in verses 13. Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you and anyone is living permanently among you and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the, for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generation. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. What is pictured here? God not only invites his children, but all their friends over for dinner. All are welcome at the table. And God taught both his children and his guests about his character and his ways through table fellowship. And any children who were guests but that wanted to hang around and actually wanted to become part of the family were invited in to be adopted to this family. And God treated all of his children, whether they were natural-born or adopt it without favoritism. He loved them all more than they could imagine. He held them to the same standards, the same rules, and he had the same dreams for them, the same big plans. The story continues in verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, you shall present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution through, uh, throughout your generation. Notice that when God's people ate at God's house, they were to bring a gift. And when God's children did well at work, right, or in life, he commanded them to return to the table with a spirit of thanksgiving and generosity. They were to honor God with the first share, the first portion of dough. And this was actual dough, not money dough. This is dough. <laughs> and they were to praise God for their blessings and share it with the rest of the family. And this was a daily offering at times. 
So what does this mean? We're used to reading through all these regulations about offerings and sacrifices and be like, oh my goodness, seems like such drudgery. But when you look at these in context, they illustrate profound and beautiful truths. First, they show that the, the fundamental problem of all bad religion is a failure to believe that God is good and loving and trustworthy and he wants relationship with us. He is generous. He wants us to know his provision and his protection and his goodness. And nothing breaks his heart more than, than unbelief. And I'm not talking about unbelief like Chris talked about this, this morning of uncertainty. But, but unbelief, it's not an absence of faith as much as it is faith in an opposite set of propositions about God. It's, it's saying God's not good. He's not dependable. He's not worth my time. It's not worth my time setting aside time every day to be with him and to fellowship with him. But the other thing these regulations teach us is that they challenge the assumption that following all these laws about offerings brought a sense of drudgery and that joy comes just from doing whatever we want to do and worshiping however we want. No, Ian Duguid said it best, the goal of God's regulations here is like the goal of Martha Stewart. You teach good manners and you set a fine table not to ruin the party, but to amp it up, to throw the best party that there is. And so the goal of God's regulations is not to ruin lives, but to fulfill them. How does this apply? What's the point of being a Christian? What's the point of seeking a relationship with God? Is the point simply to be removed from any challenge or difficulty to be guaranteed good things in life. That seems to be the functional belief of the first generation of Israelites that perished in the wilderness. They just wanted an easy way. They wanted food when they asked, drink when they asked. They didn't want to have to trust God, and they grumbled at every turn. And since that was the wrong answer, God invites his people yet again to table fellowship, and he says, listen, it's about a relationship with me. If you have me, you have everything you need. It's not about a relationship with my gifts. My gifts, whatever they are, of provision. It's about a relationship with me. And when you have that truth deep down, it enables you to wait upon him, to resist any temptation, to face any challenge, right? When you understand God's goodness and you're content with him to glorify and enjoy him, it gives you staying power under temptation. It gives you the ability to obey when no one's looking. It gives you the ability to live a different life, a life-giving life. So there you have it. Good manners start at home, God's home, and they form good character. And the regulations for table fellowship reveal God's character, his steadfast love, and his intentions is to raise children who no longer act like animals, but who are fit for the king's table. This is how much a merciful God chooses to abide with a foolish, hard-hearted people. He, he sees them as children that need his abiding presence that can be transformed by his loving character if they simply spend time with him and fellowship at table. 
And he has determined that if they do, they can be molded to reflect his character of growing into their royal calling. So that's the first point. That's the covenant regulations for table fellowship. The second point is the covenant regulations for two types of sin, right? And here the author is going to spell out regulations for intentional sins and regulations for unintentional sins, whether these are done corporately or individual, individually, and, and what it all means. So the writer is going to give us directions for how to handle intentional and unintentional sins and then give a brief example of an intentional sin. First, the directions for how to handle intentional and unintentional sins. Picking up at verse uh, 22. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandments and onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and a drink offering, according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns among them because the whole population was involved in the mistake. So that's for a corporate unintentional sin. And then he says for a singular one, right? In verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old for for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake. And when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. All right, so one law, whether you were an Israelite or whether you were a sojourner, a Gentile, right? So what, what are these unintentional sins that he talks about, and how are they different than intentional sins? So unintentional sins, let's look at verses 22 through 26. An unintentional sin can be committed either corporately, or at least there's a corporate responsibility, or it can be committed singularly. We see that in verses 27 through 29. They can be committed by an Israelite or by their guest, right, the sojourners. And unintentional sins, it's important to know, this is probably the the key distinction. Unintentional sins are not accidental sins, but they're regrettable sins. They are sins done in moments of weakness or temptation because they're things for which you are truly sorry that you've done. Right? These are sins that are not done with a high hand or a brash spirit, but they are sins that the priests can atone for. And we see this in verses 25 and 28. In other words, they are reconcilable sins because not all sins are reconcilable. Now, some sins are intentionally done. They're done without any regret. Now, when the word intentional is, it's it's saying that there's no regret. They're done brashly, arrogantly, without any sense of godly sorrow. Maybe worldly sorrow because they don't want to deal with the consequences, but these are sins for which it says the priest cannot atone 
because the person doing them is unrepentant. Look at it in verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Now, a couple observations. The direction of those who have these intentional sins is a direction of continued unrepentance, showing no godly sorrow. In other words, they're defiant. It's defiant, insistent sin. They continue, notice, to revile the Lord. They continue to despise the word of the Lord. And for that reason, the Lord's to cut them off from his people, to remove them like a cancer for their arrogant, reviling attitude. So it doesn't spread. There's no atonement for the sin by a priest. There's no repentance and there's no asking for forgiveness. Now, this is the summary, right? Here we have the directions for how to handle intentional and unintentional sins. Now, that's the directions. Then afterwards, he's going to give an example. Here's the example. And to our modern ears, I'm going to warn you, this example of an intentional sin uh, is going to sound shocking. It's shocking to us about what God does and does not consider atonable or forgivable. Pick up at verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had been made clear what, uh, because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. But the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, to our modern ears, the sin of gathering sticks on the Sabbath doesn't really seem all that bad. And so to read that God considers it so bad that it deserves the death penalty is a huge shock to our modern sensibilities. Now, I worked on uh, secular college campuses for over two decades, and we would discuss the Bible constantly with atheists and agnostics and skeptics. And I can tell you from working with secular college students for decades that verses like this turn people's stomach, and they said, that's why I can never accept the God of the Bible or the Bible is God's word. How could such a God be so severe And the objection would go something like this. Wait a second. You mean that Moses, who was a murderer for killing, you know, he killed an Egyptian, was not only allowed in the covenant community, but allowed to lead the covenant community? He gets off, but some ignorant man, simply gathering sticks on the Sabbath, gets taken out to the woodshed and stoned? How is that just? How is that fair? And this is a fair objection. And stated that way, there appears to be no answer for it. But the Bible frames the real danger of sin 
differently than we frame it. The Bible says all sin is dangerous and all sin is deadly and all sin deserves death. On this, the Bible is abundantly clear. But the Bible goes on and says not all sin is atonable. Not all sin is forgiven. And so that begs the question, well, which sins are forgiven and which ones are not? Well, it has to do with the heart. Any sin done defiantly, meaning without godly regret or sorrow, cannot be atoned for, for the heart is stone cold and still dead. And even if the sin seems little, it's still malignant, and it will eventually spread and contaminate and defile anything still connected to it. Stubborn, unrepentant sinners must be cast out because they spread the cancer of rebellion and contaminate others with their unyielding determination to despise God's rule and his word. But, on the other hand, any sin done unintentionally, not accidentally, but sin that is a regrettable mistake, and the key word is regrettable, sin that breaks the heart of the person who committed it, can always be atoned for, can always be forgiven, for the heart of such a person is pierced through. It's been cracked, and the healing power of God's grace can get into that heart and transform it. Even if the sin seems too big and too ugly to forgive, God has atoned for it, so it is now benign. Its malignancy has been healed, so it cannot contaminate or defile anything connected to it. Forgiven and atoned sinners may stay because they spread the healing agents of a soft, repentant heart that is sorry for sin and wants to trust in God's forgiveness. And they contaminate others with a determination to honor God better, correct their mistakes, and love others more. And we see this same principle at play even in our own justice system, right? Little sins done defiantly can get you in big trouble. Ian Duguid points this out. He says, within our legal system, there's the concept of contempt of court. Have you heard of this principle? You won't typically get thrown in jail for a parking ticket, but if you repeatedly fail to respond to a citation to appear in court because of the parking ticket, the judge can and will put you in jail. Why? A little sin that is defiant causes big trouble. If courts fail to respond to such contempt, the whole legal system would be endangered. And in the same way, the man who is put to death wasn't put to death for gathering sticks. We have to remember the context. He wasn't put to, get to death for, for gathering sticks on the Sabbath and making a fire. He was put to death because of his flagrant defiance of God. He knew the law forbid working on the Sabbath, Exodus 35.2. He also knew he shouldn't kindle a fire on the Sabbath, Exodus 35.3. Meanwhile, he's camping in the wilderness, 
in the middle of approximately two million people? And was it likely that no one would have seen the smoke from his fire once he kindled it? That's hardly plausible. More likely, he brazenly went out in front of everyone and broke God's law defiantly. And even after seeing all of God's miracles, all of God's warnings, all the ways God had delivered, all the ways God had punished the spies and the leaders who despised God's promises and refused to enter the promised land, after all that he had seen, I mean, think about the miracles this man has seen to get to where he is. He's still defiant, and such defiance had to be dealt with or the whole community would be compromised. So how does this apply? I want to close briefly with this. How does this apply? Two applications. Any sin can make us beastly. Not just the shocking ones. The acceptable ones are just as capable of causing us to lose our mind and lose our humanity. Social media right now is aflame with the sin of defiant lies, misinformation, and disinformation. What's it doing to our communities? It's tearing us apart. Favoritism keeps the unjust in positions of power to do more harm. Greed prevents good and hardworking people from receiving the fruits of their labor. Envy seems to be doing quite an effective job of, defi- of dividing us as we fail to see our own privilege and we shame others for any privilege they might have. And as I mentioned in an earlier sermon, C.S. Lewis records, records the sin of a grumbling woman. And just to illustrate how, how this grumbling woman can create a living hell for herself and those around her. And here is the warning. Beware of defiant sin, no matter how small. It can cause you to lose your humanity and to turn into a beast. Second application. No sin, no matter how big, cannot be atoned for if the person is truly sorry for it. No sin, no matter how big, cannot be atoned for it. Which is another way of saying any sin, no matter how big, can be atoned for as long as the person is repentant. Moses was a murderer. Aaron was not just a participant in idolatry. He was an idol maker, right? The whole of Israel participated in idol worship. But those who repented were forgiven. Whether they sinned alone or in community, Either way, their sin could be atoned for and they could be forgiven. So there you have it, God and Israel. And it answers the question of how such a beautiful God lives with such a beastly people. This is how. He is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He is so merciful, but he will not let sin go unpunished because he is just And either you will be punished for your sin, no matter how small, if you remain defiant in it because he's just, or you can repent of your sin, no matter how big or dirty or devastating, and you can be forgiven because he's that merciful. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us pray. God, thank you for this time in your word. This was a lot to get through. 
Um, Father, we pray that you would help these truths to sink into our hearts. Lord, I pray for those of us who know people in our lives who are, who are defiant, we pray that you would soften their hearts. I pray for anyone here who, who knows that they are living in defiance, that you would soften their hearts, that you would bring them to repentance, that they might know your forgiveness and their sin might be atoned for. At the same time, Lord, I pray for anyone here who has an overly sensitive conscience, who uh, sins in regrettable ways. Lord, help them to know that no matter how big their sin, no matter how devastating and dirty, Lord, you are God of mercy and you are quick to forgive those who are truly repentant. And Father, help us to remember that you are a God who wants table fellowship with us. Lord, that we learn about your character and your intentions toward us by spending time with you. And so help us to see that you're the same God then as you are today. And with that knowledge, to seek to spend time in your presence, to let your presence, your love, your grace, your mercy, abiding with you, give us great joy, bear within us the fruit of the Spirit, and and make us fit to live as royal children of the King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.